This is Blaze Brosnan, and I'm your host for this episode of MIR Meets. Today, I'll be speaking with Robert Wright, a journalist and Substack writer who has written on a variety of topics, um, including evolutionary psychology, the history of religion, and foreign policy. I'll be speaking to him on his 2009 book, The Evolution of God, which traces the history of human religious practice from hunter-gatherer religions like shamanism towards modern universalistic forms of monotheism and its implications for the study of religion today. If time permits, we'll also be discussing uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So what I want to start out with is how did you become interested in writing on religion? Well, I was brought up religiously for starters. I was brought up a Southern Baptist. Uh, I didn't hold on to my Christian faith, uh, but I maintained an interest in the subject. And of course, religion is an important force in the world. Uh, you know, the, the book was written after 9-11 uh, when, you know, a lot of people thought that the way to figure out why 9-11 had happened was to become conversant in Islam and, and delve into Islamic scriptures. Um, I didn't really think that was the way to understand why. I mean, it wasn't irrelevant. It was relevant. But I guess I, I just don't I don't believe in kind of scriptural determinism. You know, uh, I, I think that all religions have times when they are being uh, belligerent and reading their scriptures that way and finding the belligerent parts of their scriptures. Uh, and, and all religions uh, have times when they're they're being more benign or benevolent and reading their scriptures that way. And in fact, I shouldn't even say all religions. I mean, you know, it's usually a group within a religion that is choosing to read its scripture one way or the other. But uh, so I, you know, one thing that that book is about is uh, what conditions uh, are conducive to, you know, a tolerant reading of your scriptures and what what circumstances tend to encourage a less tolerant or, or more more belligerent reading of your scriptures? I'm also uh, interested in, in the kind of generic philosophical questions that religions answer. You know, why do bad things happen in the world? Is there a larger purpose to life and so on? Uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm interested in various dimensions of religion. And just to maybe uh, set up where this book is coming from and what your background is, uh, if I remember correctly, you studied um, evolutionary psychology and uh, sociobiology at, at Princeton under E.O. Wilson. Is that correct? Not exactly. Uh, I, I And I didn't study intensively at Princeton uh, sociobiology, what was then called sociobiology. Uh, I did take a seminar in sociobiology there that got my attention. And and I mean, in a big way, uh, you know, I, I uh, it was. There was a big controversy around then about sociobiology and about Ed Wilson, who was at Harvard. And he had written this mammoth book called Sociobiology. And, you know, I so I, I first saw it on the cover of Time magazine. I think it was 77, maybe uh, 1977. And so I got interested in it. So when I saw this seminar on sociobiology, I uh, I attended. I'd always had a hit, uh, an interest in psychology, although that wasn't my major either. Um, and when I first understood the theory of kin selection and how it could explain, uh, 
altruism or at least uh you know kin directed altruism very elegantly i was kind of sold on uh how possibly fertile this worldview was but i but and then i wrote about ed wilson in my very first book three scientists and their gods he's one of the three scientists so i got to know him a little and, and wrote about his work um but i didn't study under him but you never studied under him directly but no why um you know, you apply evolutionary psychology concepts throughout, um, you know, even the evolution of God, you know, for instance. Um, yeah, yeah, my second book, The Moral Animal, was about evolutionary psychology. It was when the ter- term evolutionary psychology was just beginning to be used. In fact, it, it had evolutionary psychology in the subtitle, and it may be the first book that had it in its title or subtitle. Certainly the first trade book, you know, by a commercial publisher. Um, that was... And that was an important development. I, I mean, evolutionary psychology was kind of, uh, I think, more highly evolved, if you will, than uh, sociobiology. Uh, but in any event, yes, that that worldview, I believe natural selection uh, shaped the contours of human nature in ways that influence our psychology and behavior in in pretty subtle ways that that uh, it behooves us to understand. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Um, and then to start listeners off on the, the topic at hand, the illusion of God, um, a freaking motif in your writing, uh, whether on religion, foreign policy, or evolution, is the concept of non-zero sumness. So you assume, basically, that many human interactions, whether it be theological exchanges or political conflicts, are non-zero sum games. That is, both parties, even if the encounter appears conflictual at first, have something potentially to gain from it. And so can you, um, you know, elaborate on that idea to our listeners, specifically as as it relates to your theory of the history of religion and how these kind of non-zero-sum interactions fundamentally shaped human religious development and growth? Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I wrote a book in 2000 called Non-Zero uh, that was about both human history and uh, biological evolution, or you could say it was about both... Uh, biological evolution and cultural evolution taken broadly to include the evolution of basically all bodies of non-genetic information. I mean, like, you know, religions, technologies, uh, science, culture, everything, uh, culture in the traditional sense. Um, And, uh, you know, at that point, I think game theory was less popularly known. So when I was when I would talk about that book, I had to go back to basics and and kind of explain, you know, zero sum game. The fortunes of the players are in exactly inversely correlated. Your gain is my loss. So tennis, one player's gain is the other's loss. But if you're playing doubles, then on your side of the court, it's entirely non-zero sum. Everything is good for you and your partner, your relationship with your partner is entirely non-zero sum. Everything is is either good for you or bad for you to exactly the same extent. And yeah, there, as you said, I do think there are a lot of non-zero sum games in life. Um, in real life, uh, you know, things are complicated, of course, <laughs> when you get beyond, uh, you know, games like The Prisoner's Dilemma, the classic uh, illustration of non-zero-sum dynamics and usually you have a a complicated mixture of zero-sum and non-zero-sum dynamics but i did argue in the evolution of god that if you kind of you know at the risk of oversimplification you could say that 
when two religious groups see their relationship as highly non-zero-sum, that is to say they can both gain through constructive interaction um, or stand to both lose if if things go awry, you're, 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 you're more likely to get them to see the tolerant parts of their scripture and emphasize those and use them as a basis for treating uh, the other group considerately because they want to do business with them, so to speak. They want to collaborate with them to their mutual benefit. Whereas in a purely zero-sum situation, and although military conflict is never really purely zero-sum, it, it's, you know, for 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 purposes of the model, we can treat it that way. Um, uh, you know, once you, once you, or, or, or take something like, well, this does bring us to the Middle East, take property, take land ownership, right? There's only every square inch of, uh, you know, that great historic Palestine can be only, you know, can, can be, you know, belongs to one group or the other, at least the way it's played out. And, and that makes it a zero sum game. Um, and, and I, as I, uh, as I argued in, in the evolution of God, um, although I didn't dwell on the contemporary Middle East, um, you know, that kind of tension, a, a, a zero-sum dynamic tends to bring out the less tolerant parts of religion. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I've, uh, it, it's, you know, the, the game theory kind of pervades my view of the world, I guess you could say. I mean, I guess one example you give of this non-zero-sum aspect in history of religion, and we'll return to it later because I kind of want to give a more all-encompassing history of religion uh, first. But one one example you give um, is the case of uh, the interaction between uh, ancient Roman and Greek philosophy and that of, uh, of of Judaism. And so Philo of Alexandria, for instance, was a, uh, uh, you know, a, a Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, who was enamored with Platonic philosophy, while also, um, you know, a, a, a very confirmed Jew, and he had to argue for uh, religious tolerance uh, for Jews with Caligula, who was quite suspicious of Judaism because, uh, you know, Jews, you know, only worshipped one god and they weren't willing to worship Caligula. And so he uh, he basically had to uh, put forward a more apparently tolerant seeming uh, version of Judaism to appeal to Caligula to prevent Caligula from persecuting the Jews. And that's one example where an apparently hostile relationship um, you know, the threat of persecution can lead to a non-zero interaction where both sides gain and the idea of religious tolerance develops. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was very much in Philo's interest to cultivate an atmosphere of tolerance. I, I would say um, the same thing about early Christianity in Rome. I mean, I, I suspect uh, some of the verses that reflect those values um come from a time when the Christians were in Rome were in somewhat the condition that 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 Philo was in. They couldn't take for granted their acceptance. Um, and it was it was very much in their interest to cultivate an atmosphere of tolerance. Uh I, I one thing I'd quickly add as a footnote about Philo. You know, I said I have maintained an interest in the philosophical questions raised by religion. Uh, including the possibility of a larger purpose. And I actually, I mean, this is 
I don't get into this so much in the evolution of God, but I, I actually do think uh, there's a possibility that there is some sort of larger purpose unfolding through the workings of natural selection. I don't mean there are any spooky immaterial forces at work, but just that kind of the machine, the, the whole physical process through which biological and cultural evolution have unfolded on this planet is in some sense or another. Um, I don't want to go too far here. Let, let me just let me just uh, cut to the chase. If you were looking for a modern theology that was consistent with a scientific worldview, uh, a very appealing concept is the concept of the logos, uh, which comes from ancient Greek philosophy. Philo was, uh, you know, possibly its premier expositor. Um, there have been others, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, it was, it was a it was an influential thing around then. I think the the uh, first passage of the book of John in the New Testament, in the beginning, was the word. The word word is actually logos in Greek. And word to think of that as just meaning word is to, is to vastly oversimplify what the word logos would have meant in those days. Um, so logos is like a kind of a logic playing itself out through history, and in Philo's mind was a manifestation of of divine will. So anyway, sorry about that uh, detour, but it's one thing I find really interesting about Philo. Uh, uh, but but you're you know, you're certainly uh, right that, uh, you know, when tolerance is in uh, the interest of people, they will uh, emphasize or even come up with uh, tolerant scriptures. Uh, you know, uh, th there's a phrase in the New Testament, uh, neither, what is it, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, neither, I think neither man nor woman. The point is, uh, everyone is welcome in Christianity. And that's 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 written by Paul, uh, the, the Apostle Paul, who's operating in a cosmopolitan environment. I, I have a question about uh, the Apostle Paul a little yeah. later. But first, actually, it would be best to uh, take us through the origins of early Christianity, because that was one of those fascinating parts of the book I read. So mm -hmm. what, were the um, what were the factors in the rise of early Christianity? And. What's the best way to get a sense of who the real Jesus was and his beliefs and objectives? And so one thing, you make a distinction uh, between the more unvarnished Jesus that's portrayed in I think, the Gospel of Mark um, to mm -hmm. uh, the more kind of, uh, you know, propagandized, if you will, portrayals of Jesus, uh, you know, by uh, you know, Gospel of John, by St. Paul. Um, and in, in later manifestations of, 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 of Christianity. So, um, yeah, so what's the best way to get a sense of who the, who the real Jesus was and his least objective? And what, if anything, made him different from earlier Jewish prophets like Isaiah? Yeah, it's it's not easy to reconstruct the historical Jesus. Some people claim, think they didn't exist. I'm, I'm quite, I feel quite confident Jesus did exist. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the Bart Ehrman, who's written these kind of, be who's a, uh, these best-selling books about Christianity, uh, but is a scholar. Uh, I think makes a pretty strong case that that Jesus was uh, one of a number of apocalyptic Jewish preachers uh, who were, you know, roaming the land and preaching and uh, that some people thought he was the Messiah. But but at the time, what Messiah would have meant was that he was going to became, become king of the Jews. 
So if, if that's true, you know, in a in a in a relatively mundane sense, it did the word didn't mean what Christians mean by it. So when he was uh, crucified, that came as quite a shock to his followers, and I, I think a plausible accounting of the development of Christian ideas includes them trying to make sense of his having been unexpectedly killed uh, without letting go of the idea that he was uh, divinely ordained to be a leader, the leader. And it's it's uh, through that process of kind of rationalization that the modern conception of the uh, Messiah the, or the Christian conception of the Messiah was born. And, you know, uh, the books, even Mark was written sometime after Jesus lived, so far as they can tell. Uh, Matthew and Luke even later and John later still. And it's Matthew and Luke where you find a lot of the classic, uh, uh, the, some of the uh, most enlightened uh, passages that are associated uh, with Jesus, um, you know, uh, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, although there are two versions of that. I won't get into that. Um, and, and that, so that seems to have been, you know, it didn't appear in writing until later, uh, you know, well after Jesus's death, that would have been in this in this, uh, you know, cosmopolitan environment of Rome. And Christians probably uh, would have been still, you know, eventually Christian would become the dominant and even official religion in, in, in Rome. But this was before that. Uh, and, and Christians probably would have had a relatively precarious position. And that could well account for why, you know, Turn the other cheek, uh, you know, because when you're a, a kind of an upstart uh, and 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 even maybe somewhat persecuted religion, you you can't afford to be feeling too uppity. Um, there's actually a similar uh, dynamic in the Quran, where if you look at the surahs that seem to have written in Medina, seem to have been written in Medina when Muhammad's message was not being widely welcomed and it was a it was a, a small you know minority enterprise that's where that's where you it's in those surahs that you see similarly kind of passive um verses uh and uh and now of course in both uh you know both texts the the bible and the quran you have a, a menu of different verses you can choose from partly as a result of the of the historical period over which the scriptures took shape um, and the different conditions that applied when uh, they solidified. So, you know, which leads to my view of uh, how to think about the world. Um, don't think of any religious group as having this essential character that will never be expunged. Uh, think of religious groups and their attitudes toward other religious groups and other peoples as uh, being at least somewhat fluid. Now, they can be stubborn and they can be slow to change, but but as being ultimately responsive to the conditions in which uh, people find themselves.
So speaking of, you know, continuing on the question of, uh, of early Christianity, you know, so you write from the, the early accounts of Jesus we can reconstruct, uh, Jesus was probably not initially oriented towards, you know, creating this universalistic religion, you know, as separate from Judaism, but rather mm-hmm. was, you know, an apocalyptic Jewish preacher who probably viewed, you know, his his sect as just a, you know, a continuation of Judaism. And, you know, you argue specifically um, that Jesus was probably skeptical of expanding Christianity beyond, uh, you know, the reach of Jews, you know, for instance. Um, oh, yeah, I don't I don't think uh, he had any thought of there being yeah. a Christianity uh, in. Uh, in fact, I it, it seems to be the case that, you know, Jesus's followers, there was some disagreement initially about whether it ever should uh, expand beyond Jews. I mean, even even after his death and Paul, uh, well, not only wanted to, to take it international so to speak but to to facilitate that to drop some of the uh, uh requirements that would be considered cumbersome like circumcision uh, by, like circumcision and certain dietary restrictions right right yeah and the example of saint paul i mean the story of saint paul that you you give is actually very interesting in the, in the book because saint paul um kind of following up on your conception of non-zero sumness uh, St. Paul exploited, um, you know, business relationships with, you know, I think he, uh, in his, his day job, he was like a, a tent maker of some sort. Um, he, uh, he exploited uh, business connections with Roman elites, you know, across the empire to uh, forge a religious network. Um, and of course, uh, you know, because he was, you know, in this cosmopolitan world of, you know, uh, Cross empire trade, he was, you know, he was incentivized to open up Christianity to non Jews and underplay the distinction between, you know, Jews and Gentiles, you know, in Christianity. So that they kind of a, you know, the non zero sum interactions fueled literally by economic trade in that case, you know, galvanized St. Paul. Right. I mean, when you think about the challenge he faced traveling from city to city, I mean, there weren't, you know, hotel chains then. It, it was, you know, it, he he needed uh he needed kind of sponsors or patrons. I mean, people who'd let him stay at their house, you know. And if they were fairly affluent and well connected, so much the better. Um, and you know, so he was naturally kind of following uh the sinews of commerce, and those sinews tend to be kind of cosmopolitan and trans-ethnic, right? I mean, people want to make money; they're happy to make it off. Of, people of any color right uh, uh, and sometimes exploit people in the process but uh but not always and in any event they, they are willing they tend to be willing to do business with all kinds of people so the roots of commerce within rome tended to be relatively uh trans-ethnic and christianity reflected that and you know we, we think of you know you hear paul said you know this is said in the book of romans and this in the book of corinthians and we don't, you know, you don't naturally think like, okay, well, what, what was the function of this text when it was produced? And it was Paul writing a letter to a congregation he had founded in Rome or in Corinth or somewhere else, uh, partly to try to keep them in line, to preach to them, inspire them, sometimes reprimand them. Uh, like when speaking in in tongues was was being disruptive in some congregations he kind of discourages that 
Um, and uh, and so he's really harnessing what at that point was the latest information technology, written letters transported from city to city to keep the, you know, the expanse of, of Christianity intact. Another aspect, you know, I, I think that's kind of related to this question. We can kind of compare it to the example of Philo before um, is that so Philo was obviously, as we discussed, motivated by uh, pragmatic concerns, uh, you know, namely the security of the Jewish people to advance a more tolerant concern of, uh, conception of religion. But he was also influenced by uh, substantive ideals. He fell in love with both Greek philosophy and with, uh, you know, and was a committed Jew nonetheless. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the exchange within the Roman Empire, you know, allowed an intellectual exchange of ideas that was sincere. Um, and I think, I mean, I, what I've heard at least, again, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on, you know, I'm not even a specialist on religion, um, is that you can sort of say the same same thing about St. Paul. So as we established, St. Paul established by, um, was St. Paul was galvanized in part by practical concerns, um, namely the idea to build a network of support among, you know, elites in the Roman Empire to build a cosmopolitan conception of, of Christianity as religion. But he was also... Um, I think there's quite a bit of scholarship on St. Paul, I've heard at least, and not informed specifically on the literature, that he was a Platonist of sorts, and he was deeply influenced by Platonic ideals. I, I took a course on early Christianity and, uh, and, and, and late Roman literature um, over the summer, and there was this one student who was obsessed with St. Paul, and he would always discuss, you know, in every class he felt this imp impetus to go on about how St. Paul was a middle Platonist. And I never knew quite what that meant, middle Platonist. So how was St. Paul influenced by Platonic thought? Yeah, I'm not I'm not any more of an expert on that particular part of him than you are. I mean, it does immediately call to mind this famous line of his. Here we see as through a glass darkly. I mean, it, it calls to mind kind of uh, Plato's, uh, you know, cave yeah. allegory where we're just this is just a dim reflection of ultimate reality it, it you it, it's for practical purposes a kind of illusion and of course now i should say platonism evolved you know uh for some time and uh so there are these various phases of it and 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 i honestly don't know which parts paul would have been most likely to make contact with but this idea that uh the world you see is in some sense not the real world you know that that can be reconciled with a Christian idea that what we're ultimately living for is the world beyond where we will reside in the afterlife if we're good Christians, right? Um, but uh, that's 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 a passage that certainly comes comes to mind the through the through a glass darkly line. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I know, you know, I know also, you know, it's been suggested that St. Paul uh, reconciled himself much more to Roman uh, political authority than, you know, than Jesus did, at least the Jesus we have in the Gospels. You know, there's the the famous line, and this is a controversial interpretation. There's the famous line, uh, you know, from Jesus, uh, you know, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And uh, that's taken... Um, at least, uh, you know, by political theorists I've engaged with, taken courses with, as you know, as kind of a, uh, as kind of a, you know, a, a turning, you know, turning the other cheek away from, you know, you know, fighting Roman uh, Roman authority, 
um, mm-hmm. but also kind of an indifference to Roman political authority. And in St. Paul and Romans, you know, and so on, my impression, at least, you know, when I read the texts several years back, that he was much more conciliatory with Roman authority and actually thought that Romans, had, you know, Christians had some kind of theological duty to obey, you know, temporal authorities, uh, you know, you know, whatever they may be. So can we also say that in order to, you know, um, expand his religion, he was also motivated to reconcile himself with Roman political structures, at least to a greater extent than Jesus did. I think that was a practical necessity. And and as for whether Jesus actually said, you know, render unto Caesars, we we, we don't know. Uh, I I would think if, if, if that was really highly representative of his attitude, he, you know, they might not have killed him. Right. I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, but, but, but I, I, I don't know whether he really said that, but certainly, um, uh, yeah, Paul, uh, again, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of, he, he, he was a preacher of, a, a you know, a certain amount of, of yeah. Uh, of getting along with, with other people. And, and he, and he had no choice, I think at that point in Christian history. Ultimately, Christianity would would uh, be embraced, you know, by Emperor Constantine and become the official religion of Rome. But uh, but he couldn't take that. Uh, he couldn't take power for granted, Paul. And what were the advantages? You know, you have a chapter uh, in your book, Survival of the Fittest Christianity, where you just well, you discuss, well, why is it that Pauline Christianity thrived? Um, you know, while other forms of Christianity, some of which were quite eccentric, um uh died off and to uh you know to give a, a sort of a you know a, uh, an example two forms you cite are you know Jewish Christianity the idea that um you know uh, um basically Christianity was uh, just just a form of Judaism and it shouldn't be expanded to Gentiles you know circumcision mm-hmm. be required and so on and also something called Marcionism uh which stressed um that Jesus had revealed a new God entirely different than the God of the Old Testament. So what was the advantage of Pauline Christianity? And why did it why did it survive while other forms died off? Well, um, you know, he kind of got to have it both ways. I mean, by not defining it as a Jewish religion, he got to expand his audience, you know, beyond Jews. And in, and in fact, he made it easier to do that by dropping uh, the the requirements such as circumcision and, and you know, eating kosher and so on. And, and that, um, in principle, he could have said it, it can move beyond Jews, but you still have to be circumcised, but he chose not to. And that uh, that allowed him to build a large religion. At the same time, maintaining the connection to the Old Testament, you know, allowed him to use, I gather, some of the kind of Jewish infrastructure, so to speak. Uh, I I believe, I mean, you know, it's been um, 14 years since I published this book and and I, I, you know, I've gone on to write about other things, but I believe he made use sometimes in some cities of of synagogues to to preach or at least of of gatherings that were fundamentally gatherings of Jews. So, he uh you know it, it was it was the best of both worlds from a from a kind of strategic sense that's re- that's uh that's really interesting and, and kind of kind of puts you know your theme of uh you know your kind of evolutionary theme you know into context with the book 
Um, I just want to kind of go back. This is actually this question was actually I intended it with my first question, but we kind of got into the early Christianity material, uh, you know, early, uh, earlier than I expected. But so just to give you know listeners some context. So you know, more generally, you argue in this book that you know, uh, throughout human history, there's a tendency towards religions converging towards a more universalistic and all-encompassing conception of God. And so, can you maybe like very briefly explain? You know, how you trace the development of mainstream human religious practice from polytheism in hunter-gatherer societies to, you know, the big Abrahamic faiths, you know, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. And obviously, there are other examples, you know, of, of religions that don't quite fit that paradigm, like Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Confucian practices. But let's set that aside for now. How would you trace, uh, you know, the development uh, of kind of the bulk of human religious practice? from these hunter-gatherer faiths all the way towards monotheism. Yeah, well, I'm I'm in that book. I'm tracing the evolution of the Abrahamic God. Yeah. Uh, so it is ultimately yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do think all religions had their origin in, I mean, you know, 12,000 years ago, all there were, were was uh, hunter-gatherer societies and uh, or 14 or something around there. Um, and... Uh, they, so far as we can tell from the anthropological record of of looking at observed hunter-gatherer societies, including some that had not been much influenced by, you know, Western culture or anything when they were first studied, um, you know, it, it's a good guess that all of them were, you know, religion was deeply embedded in all of these societies. And so the modern religions in some sense, evolved from them, right? I mean, they they changed over time and under certain circumstances. And you see um, some, some basic patterns in that. I mean, uh, for example, when you get to uh, so-called uh, chiefdoms, which is, uh, you know, kind of, uh, which is characteristic of early agrarian societies, they're, they're, they're pre-literate, but early agrarian. And so you have multiple villages uh, under one polity, you start seeing more of a moral dimension to religion. In hunter-gatherer societies, there's not that much of a need to discourage, uh, to have like a, a God-punishing theft because theft just isn't that practical. There's not much stuff. It's it's hard to hide stuff if you steal it. There's not much stuff to steal. And, you know, ultimately, you're going to be brought to justice. You're, you know, you, you're living like 15 yards away from whoever you stole from. So, uh, that that's an example of, of a change you tend uh, to see with time. And then, um, yeah, you also uh, eventually saw in the in the Abrahamic uh, lineage. You saw a movement toward monotheism. Now, you also saw that in ancient Egyptian religion. It didn't quite stick, uh, but there was a. Uh, there was, uh, uh, there was a, you know, there was a, a moment where uh, it was a pretty, uh, there was, there was a big movement toward monotheism. Um, now, you know, there's a lot more in the parts of the, of the Hebrew Bible or what Christians call the Old Testament, especially the early parts, there's a lot more polytheism than people realize. I mean, the, 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 the Hebrew Bible, it, you know, it's like the Quran and for that matter, the New Testament, in the sense that the books aren't arrayed in the order in which they were written. So it's not easy to see the evolution. Uh, but to the extent that you can figure out when stuff was likely written, 
you know, it does seem to be the case that the early stuff was uh, was quite polytheistic. For example, uh, you know, Yahweh, uh, one of the names for for the Abrahamic God in the Hebrew Bible, apparently had a wife, Asherah. You know, most people don't know that, but the evidence is pretty clear. And there's even archaeological evidence supporting it, as well as uh, evidence in biblical text. Um, so, uh, yeah, you do see a movement toward monotheism. I, I would think, you know, that's uh, driven by a couple of things. One is that ultimately it's easier to reconcile with uh, science. And in, the, you know, the Greek milieu... Uh, which, you know, the final stages of of the biblical period, uh, at least um, of, of the of the, you know, the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, were probably Greek influenced. Um, you know, you you have the beginnings of real science, and so you know, monotheism has that virtue. Um, but you know, there there are other things that may well factor in um and there's a kind of a a slightly probably too complicated for present uh purposes but uh in the book very important story about the circumstances that seem to have shaped the emergence of monotheism among the jews it it, it seems to have happened uh after the exile uh, after they were forced, you know, they were uh, subjugated by the Babylonians and forced into exile. Um, and uh, the, uh, it, it, you know, there had been a movement toward uh, monolatry to begin with. The worship uh, of, the word, the exclusive worship of one God, but not the belief. Right. In. You're not, you're, yeah. you're, it's, you're not denying the existence of other gods. You're just saying you should, ex you should worship. Yahweh yeah. only. There was a movement within Israel to say the Yahweh alone movement, it's sometimes called, but you should only worship Yahweh. They weren't denying that other gods existed. They were just saying, you know, these other gods aren't serving us well. Yahweh is the one to uh, put our faith in. And that seems to be uh, a reflection of political uh, kind of contention on the ground. Uh, so uh, it, it seems to be associated with an attempt to assert centralized political authority. From Jerusalem um, by saying, you know, this is this is the one God will tell you what this God means and what this God wants and you should do it, you know. So that seems to I mean, it's more complicated than that. The story, you know, I tell the story in the book. Uh, but then um, after, and, and then after the exile, uh, when, you know, and again, this is just one account that I find plausible. It's not, I didn't invent it. Uh, I am kind of, you know, putting it together from things uh, other scholars have said, and, and some would not uh, would not accept it. But um, you see this in so-called second Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, you know, historians will say has at least, I think most would now say at least three different authors. It was written at different times, but certainly most would say at least two. And in so-called Second Isaiah, you see the first kind of unequivocally monotheistic utterances. That is, at least if you accept the standard chronology of when, uh, of roughly when different books are written. Um, and uh, it looks as if the way they're uh, 
accounting for the fact that their God seems to have been vanquished. And remember, in those days, this is the way a loss in war was interpreted. Your God got beaten by their God. Your national God got beaten by their national God. And so all those people who had said, put your faith in Yahweh had some explaining to do. And this is when you you get these, uh, you know, they're apocalyptic in their own way. They're, they're In fact, they're classically apocalyptic in the sense that there's a, they envision a future, uh, you know, kind of reversal of, of fortunes and and they are currently the oppressed, but that's going to change. And and then the people of all lands will see that the Jewish God is the one true God. Okay, that that's you start seeing passages like that. Not just that their God will, not just that Yahweh will will, will defeat the other gods, uh, but that uh, when the when the Jews are again triumphant, the people in other lands will understand that Yahweh is the one true God. Uh, so this is. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's the most plausible accounting uh, for how uh, monotheistic utterances first took root. But but I think, you know, as uh, as the Jews move into a Greek milieu um, and and I'm not I'm not an expert on on this part at all, but uh, you, you can see how monotheism would would hold more people and of course a lot of people would say wait the greek milieu wasn't scientific per se no but it was very rationalistic they were starting to try to explain things that might have otherwise been attributed to a god a particular god you know the god of thunder the god of so on and of course look that's reflected you know greek religion still does that uh but you do um you're starting to see an, uh, an impetus behind uh, explaining uh, uh, phenomena in a more uh, scientific way. In any event, as that proceeds, li- leave aside the Hebrew Bible. As that proceeds, and 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 you know, through the history of humankind, and we start actually understanding why thunder happens and these various things happen, and and we're able to explain things more deterministically. Uh, you can see why polytheism would, would run into trouble. I mean, the other kind of interesting uh, question related to that, actually, is, um, um, you know, it's very interesting that modern, something akin to modern monotheism developed um, with the classically apocalyptic texts of Second Isaiah. Because, mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think it's been suggested that there's a, um, there's a link of sorts between monotheism um and apocalyptic beliefs you know so for one thing take uh take the, the gods of the bronze age um it was very common among you know bronze age gods you know sumer mm-hmm. and so on that these gods were ever present in people's lives you know people you know would commonly say you know oh, i had a dream and i i talked to you know you know such and such god for instance mm-hmm. and so the idea that spirituality or the divine was removed from human life something removed from human life uh, you know, you know, uh, seemed alien. It seemed alien, and then you know, after the Bronze Age collapse, and even you know, you see this in ancient Greek religion, um, the gods were much more removed from ordinary life than, say, the Bronze Age gods were. You know, talking to a god was a unique, you know, rare occasion, and so on. And so, as people develop, maybe with you know, interchange and trade, a more scientific or rationalistic worldview. Um, the idea of gods that are just enmeshed with the world becomes very hard 
to uh you know to to countenance um and i think that leads to through the pressure of, of you know apocalyptic beliefs which basically suggest you know okay god is you know alien from the world right now um but you know there's a great moment of apocalypse you know we'll be reunited with the divine again um yeah. Yeah, I, w- I would emphasize, you know, monotheism can be very personal. You know, uh, uh, I'm not sure if you're suggesting that it's that it tends not to be, but but it it can, you know, it, there's tremendous variance. Yeah, I mean, at one end of the spectrum, there's deism, which holds that the one God just wound up the universe and then sat back and watched and didn't intervene. But certainly, um, there's a lot of personal contact uh, with 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 God in the form of prayer um and uh uh and so on um but you know apocalypticism is a thing that transcends the abrahamic religions i mean it's been observed as a phenomenon um in various places in the, and and it, it 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 seems to originate uh when when uh people feel uh, persecuted oppressed and are probably and it involves dreaming of a day when the fortunes will be reversed and you'll be on top. I mean, the, the classic apocalyptic Christian text, uh, you know, is uh, um, is is uh, seems to have been written in a time when um, when the, the Christians are, you know, it's Revelation, of course, but it, when the Christians are. Uh, feeling persecuted by rome i mean there there's this imagery that seems to be about you know uh the roman leadership getting its comeuppance um and and so yeah that's uh and then of course that that gets intertwined with what i said earlier about making sense of how jesus the messiah could have died um he's going to come back and that's you know he's gonna, and that and that will be the apocalypse when justice is restored to the world. So I guess yeah, that's uh, that puts uh, the history of of apocalypticism into perspective. I had read some accounts; it's just that apocalypticism and monotheism were, were linked in some way. Maybe they may be correlated, but that that puts uh, that that sort of theory into perspective. But um, um, but I guess my final really major question is um, so throughout the evolution of God, um. You know, um, sociologists of religion uh, make a distinction between um, uh, functionalist and substantive accounts of religious belief. And so the functionalist account, you know, treats religious belief um, as something that's necessary for social you know, evolutionary purposes, you know, solving collective collective action problems, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is, is one example. Whereas a substantive account prefers to treat religious belief really on its own terms, in terms of the experience of the individual believer, uh, Peter Berger is the, you know, the pioneer of the substantive view. Um, so the thesis of your book is, on the one hand, you know, pretty directly functionalist in nature. If you think religion exists in part to fulfill social purposes, such as solving collective action problems and facilitating commerce and engagement outside small family networks. Um, however, you also take a pretty substantive account of the nature of religion because you argue that even if religious doctrines aren't necessarily true in a literal sense, the evolution of religious experience has to be treated on its own terms and encapsulates important truths about the human condition. So you argue towards the end of your book um, mm-hmm. that 
even if belief in God isn't true in a literal sense, in sort of a pragmatic sense of belief in a God and with an order to the universe helps people be more moral and fulfill you know, certain social purposes, then it can be true in kind of a Jamesian pragmatic sense. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like you take on, you really treat individual religious experience very seriously on its own terms. Um, well, and, yet yeah, same, and yet at the same time, uh, you're obviously very aware of, you know, that religion is ultimately a functional practice. And so I guess the question is, do you see any subs- any tension between the substantive account and the the functionalist view? And how do you reconcile that in your book? Um. Well, I first of all say I'm not uh I, I like not to be think of myself as a kind of a naive functionalist who assumes that everything in religion is good for the group. I mean the 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 process by which culture evolves, uh including religion, is is complicated. Uh it, you know, powerful people will try to use not necessarily consciously even, but they will they will wind up, in effect, trying to influence, shape culture to their own ends. I mean, as I said, uh, it was a political power in Jerusalem that may have uh, been been uh, encouraged people to th- think of Yahweh as the only God that should be worshipped. Um, and there, there are, and, and then there's just the fact that for any belief to be widely held, it helps. For it to be congenial to personal interest as well, right? I mean, uh, so uh, you know, the idea that you live forever, or that that your sins are not uh, do not condemn you forever, there is forgiveness. You know, these are appealing uh, at the individual psychological level, and that helps them. So I would, I would, you know, say that what you finally get with religion is. Uh, you know, in some sense, a mishmash uh, in a way of of kind of of different interests that have that have shaped that have shaped the doctrine. Um, that said, if it if it if it's really corrosive at the social level, it probably won't survive as as a religion, right? Um, so I, I think there is some functionalist in me, and you know, Durkheim is one of the uh, classic functionalists. Um, this is some of that in me um the uh i now i i uh and, and i and i agree that you can you know william james basically did may you know it's not just a jamesian sense in which you could argue that i think james kind of argued that in his essay a will to, the will to believe yeah. um and uh you know and that's that's dependent on a pragmatic in the in the philosophical sense view of truth uh i i think there's there's one other sense in which I take religion seriously, and a lot of people who would accept other parts of my argument don't, which is gets back to the fact that I I actually think you can argue that there is there does seem to be evidence of a larger purpose unfolding, uh, and, and that that uh, and that. And that involves assertions about uh, the likelihood of the evolution of intelligent life through natural selection, just plain vanilla natural selection, nothing spooky. Um, and once you've got intelligent life, the the the, the natural kind of direction of cultural evolution. Um, uh, so, 
you know, and and, and uh, I mean, I think the point of history we're at is very interesting where it seems as if uh, the continued kind of cultural evolution that has brought us to the threshold of, of, of kind of a global community can only be sustained. You know, we can only cross the threshold if we kind of improve morally, I, I guess you could say, get, get better at looking at things from one another's point of view, uh, become less reflexively responsive to some of the instincts that currently guide our attitudes toward other people and so on. Um, I think if you look at the whole thing, you can make the argument, uh, by the whole thing, I mean the last three billion years, uh, that there is a purpose unfolding. Now, where that came from, I don't know. It, it, it could be an intelligent being that started life on this planet, could be an extraterrestrial, could even be something that you wouldn't call an intelligent being. It could be some kind of meta-natural selection process comparable to natural selection, but operating on the scale of whole universes and selection among them. A lot of possibilities, but I do, that does, you know, I do raise the question at the end of the book. Um, I think in the context of talking about Steven Weinberg, a physicist uh, who who said that the, the, the lesson of physics is that there's no point, to, you know, there's no purpose, no point to anything almost. I forget how he put it. Um, you know, I say, uh, if, if it turns out that there is in some sense a larger purpose unfolding, maybe uh, whatever the cause, even if it doesn't seem at all uh, or, or very much at all like the kinds of purpose asserted by practicing Christians, Jews, Muslims and others, um, who will have been closest to being right? Stephen Weinberg, uh, who said there's no purpose at all. Or these people who did say there was a larger purpose and were, you know, had some significant misconceptions about what it was and how it was unfolding. Right. Uh, so th that's a sense in which I feel more tolerant of religious belief than maybe some people. I mean, I also say I just want to say quickly, I just think also Sam Harris is just wrong about what's good for the world. OK, it's, <laughs> you know, the the. Uh, Religion is not the root of the conflict in the Middle East and acting as if it is and trying to walk up to Muslims and shake their shoulders and say, don't you understand your God doesn't exist is the opposite of helpful. Uh, so there's that, too. I guess I wanted to throw that ad for my worldview. in. yeah. And uh, that kind of answered my final question, which was, you know, uh, final question on religion, that is. Uh, which was, uh, you know, what do you think of the future of constructive interaction between world religions today? Um, but, I mean, it's a good segue, actually, to discuss uh, just kind of the Israel-Palestine conflict, which is, um, so you have a recent article on disagreement on the, uh, from the river to the sea slogan, and sort of the disagreement over that slogan as a microcosm for understanding the Israel-Palestine conflict as a whole. So you argue that, um, you know, humans tend to suffer built-in innate cognitive biases, justify the actions of their in-group as driven principally by love and concern for their own, while scorning the actions of out-groups as being driven by aggression and hate. And in the case of Israel-Palestine, um, this manifests in, you know, Israelis viewing Palestinian desire for a right of return as captured in slogans like, you know, from the river to the sea, as aggressive in nature, you know, motivated by the desire to eliminate the Jewish state. Well, many Palestinians view it as grounded in a desire for equality, and of course, vice versa, 
um, this also manifests in Israelis viewing restrictions on Palestinians' uh, rights in the West Bank as being driven primarily by concern for Israeli security, while Palestinians view it, you know, as motivated by the desire to ethnically cleanse them. So again, it seems like these cognitive biases are an example of, of zero-sum thinking uh, that you talk about, you know, throughout the evolution of God uh, that can uh, prevent, you know, uh, of tolerant interaction and it's said to lead, lead, lead to intolerance and bloodshed. But so I want to ask, I wanted to ask for this concept specifically, how can we transcend this kind of zero-sum thinking in order to make progress in resolving the conflict? I mean, the, the from the river, yeah. the example is just sort of a microcosm. Yeah, I do think, um, I mean, the, yeah, that piece that, that, by the way, was in my, my non-zero newsletter on Substack. Um, and you know, the, I mean, part of the point was just that, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding on both sides. People in these demonstrations who chant that mean a variety of things about, uh, by it. And by no means do all of them mean they favor, uh, the uh, uh genocide or even the elimination of the jewish state um uh some may it, it's just it, it's kind of all over the place and it behooves everyone i think to understand uh what the other one is uh is thinking now you're right these 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 uh these cognitive biases are very deep-seated uh they shape the way we naturally look at enemies and 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 as you said one finding uh this was actually the study was done uh with with Israelis and Palestinians is that uh, both sides think, well, we're driven mainly by love for one another, love for our own tribe, and the other tribe is driven by hatred of us mainly. Um, well, they 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 can't both be right. Um, but that that's an that's that's probably an example of a kind of built-in cognitive bias. There are many others, uh, and as for what we do about them, I mean, they are so subtle. Uh, the way, even the way, you know, confirmation bias works, everybody's heard of it now, but it's very hard to escape because it works so subtly and, uh, attribution error is another one that I don't have time to get into. Uh, I, I, I discussed that and some other ones in my most recent book, why Buddhism is true. And, and the true refers to kind of the philosophical naturalistic part of Buddhism. I'm not talking really about the religious part, but, um, uh, and that's, partly an answer to one of the questions you're asking i think is is that that book is my answer um there are ways to uh try to transcend or at least uh erode the effect of some of these cognitive biases and get a clearer picture of reality including uh the people on the other side of the fence and i think it's in our interest to to try to do that mindfulness meditation is one path i believe and i talk about that a lot in the book it's not the only one um but i do think uh you know if we're going to get out of the mess the world is in and get on to the business of solving the problems that can only be solved through international cooperation you know obviously climate change but a lot of other things too you know controlling biotechnology ai increasingly looks like something that we need to govern internationally uh, you know, not turning space into a battlefield, all kinds of non-zero-sum problems that we need to address and cannot effectively address them until we quit killing each other in large numbers. And, um, and I, uh, you know, I, I think we're, we're at this critical period where 
you know, uh, people have to have to work on the problem. People of goodwill have to uh, have to try to summon the best in themselves and and recognize how challenging the 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 problem is. The problem being human nature itself. It has a lot of good things. You know, we're, it, the capacity for love and generosity and gratitude and forgiveness are all built into human nature. The 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 challenge lies in the circumstances under which they're naturally deployed um and well and more broadly the the the, the contrast between the environment they were designed for by na by natural selection which is to say a hunter gatherer environment basically and a modern world full of large nation states nuclear weapons and all kinds of other things that make uh kind of the landscape of zero-sum and non-zero-sum interactions and, and, and the consequences of, of navigating that um, well uh, or badly, different from the landscape that existed during evolution and, and, and the consequences of, of playing those games well or not. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's it's hard to be hopeful, but I, I think and I, and I encourage people to not to to to, to uh, share <laughs> Not, not, not despair, uh, but uh, a, a recognition of the magnitude of the challenge we face right now, and 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 try, just try to try to view the world as if you were an anthropologist from Mars. We all have our natural allegiances, and when it comes to Middle East, I don't particularly because I'm not Jewish and I'm not Palestinian, but uh, we we all in some cases do. You know, we have a dog in this fight, so to speak. I encourage people to, you know, eat, especially when you're in that situation, just try to imagine, like, if you weren't in either group or affiliated with either group or sympathetic to either group, and you were just the anthropologist from Mars, and, and you were just working to understand how things look from each perspective and, and how that accounts for how they're behaving and why things look that way from that perspective. Um just try that as an intellectual exercise. Um, and if, 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 if more people tried it, I, I think the world would be better. Right. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, just to, to close up, you know, a lot of intellectual exercises in political theory like that. Like for instance, uh, you know, right now I'm working on my thesis on political philosophy and I'm engaging with John Rawls, mm -hmm. um, you know, and his theory of veil of ignorance, which is for a right. specific society is much like that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, exactly. Um, and then I guess the final thing, you know, I'll say in response to that is, you know, hopefully, humans have to, you know, evolve as moral animals, you know, in some way, because in part because the existential risks today with nuclear war, you know, climate change, and potentially AI are just so much higher than they were at any other time in human history. So humans have much less leeway to, you know, succumb to their tribal, you know, hunter-gatherer nature because it could threaten all of us as a species. Um, and hopefully, you know, your approach to kind of taking a kind of bird's-eye, non-zero-sum view will lead the way for that. So with that, I want to thank you for coming on. Um, this was a great, great episode. Thank you, and and I uh, applaud your, your closing uh, <laughs> little refrain there, yes, from your lips to God's ears, as they say. That was Robert Wright on MIR Meets.